Well, please, your Bibles again and turn once more to Isaiah 53. Uh, Isaiah 53, as we continue uh, to work our way, we're coming to the last three verses of this uh, chapter. Uh, really, these last three verses will take uh, a significant amount of time to go through them, some uh, tremendous statements of biblical truth in these last three verses. So we'll take our time uh, going through them section by section. Uh, we're going to read... Again, verse number 9 and following today. Again, this is, of course, referring to the suffering servant. And he made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Because he had done no violence, neither was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days. And the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see of the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. By his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore will I divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he hath poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors. And he bare the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. Amen. This is the word of God. And again, maybe a blessing to our souls today. Our attention is going to fall on those opening words of verse number 10. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. And there really are no words to express the mystery contained in these words. And we find ourselves entering by faith into the very heart and mind of the triune God when it comes to the issue of the atonement of Christ Jesus. Clearly, uh, the words present the biblical truth of penal substitution. They are grounded upon that truth, as we've seen throughout this section, that Christ indeed was bruised for our iniquities, verse number 5. And so verse 5 and verse 10 are clearly connected in that thought. Christ's bruising is for the sins of others, not for his own sin, but for our sins. Christ is suffering under the wrath of God in the sovereign providence of God. But what is striking in the text is that word pleased. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. Not reluctance, but the good pleasure of God in the events of Calvary those years ago. An English Baptist pastor about 20 years ago or so, wrote in a book and asked the question of the evangelical church, how that church had come to believe that at the cross, this God of love suddenly decides to vent his anger and wrath on his own son. This Baptist pastor, way too wise in his own eyes, considered this to be a mockery of Jesus' teaching about refusing to pay evil for evil, and indeed saw it as a contradiction of the statement that God is love. He went on to insist that the cross isn't a form, and I quote, of cosmic child abuse, a vengeful father punishing his son for an offence he has not even committed. Such gross ignorance of the word of God from a so-called pastor does great harm to the testimony of the gospel. He asserted the cross is a symbol of love. A demonstration of how far God is willing to prove his love. 
or without any sense of God's wrath and the blessed doctrine of penal substitutionary atonement. Of course, the cross is a display of love, but that love is displayed in the context of love for sinners and indeed God's love for his Son, but yet in display of the wrath of God as grace and justice meet in the darkness of Calvary. You see, we do believe the Bible, and believing the Bible, we must see that Isaiah 53 is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. The language is plain and repeated. The servant suffers not for his own sins, but for the sins of others. And yet that suffering is under the sovereign view and actions of the Lord. And yet I ask the question again, how can the text say it pleased the Lord? Let me first of all present the problem here. When you see the parties in view, you begin to see that there is a genuine problem here that must be considered. The parties, you have on the one hand, the Lord, capital L-O-R-D, Jehovah, have often used of the triune God, but in portions like this, clearly has in view the Father. But not the Father in isolation, because in our doctrine of the Trinity, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit work together in the work of redemption. And so it is the Lord, Jehovah, the triune God, revealed to Moses in Exodus chapter 34 as the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth. Jehovah. The other party in view, of course, is him. That is Jesus, not so much seen here as the second person of the Godhead, but seen as the incarnate God-man, the suffering servant who in the earlier verses has clearly grown out as a root out of a dry ground, referring to his perfect humanity. And so we're seeing one here who is God and man, the union of those two natures in one person, but he is the servant referred to in verse number 13 of chapter 52. Behold, my servant shall deal prudently. You see that back mentioned back in chapter 42 of Isaiah. Behold, my servant whom I uphold, mine elect in whom my soul delighteth words taken by the Lord himself in Matthew chapter 12. So clearly the suffering servant, when you get to chapter 53, is identified in the Gospels as Jesus of Nazareth. And so with that in mind, we are not seeing words describing some random event in history. We are seeing words that describe the events upon Calvary. We're seeing the words of the Godhead's involvement with the incarnate Son upon the tree as he died for our sins. The problem, though, given those parties, comes with respect to the actions and the attitude of God to the incarnate Son. Think of the action described. It pleased the Lord to bruise him. According to one Hebrew dictionary, this word refers to crumble, to break in pieces, to beat to pieces. It's used metaphorically to humble someone, to bring them to contrition, but also physically to crush, to destroy, to oppress and to smite this is a strong word in the original. Think of all the Lord endured in his sufferings. 
And you see how this comes to pass both in the physical and in the metaphorical sense of the terms. In the physical, we think of the awful suffering at the hands of those soldiers, the piercing crown of thorns, the excruciating lashings, and then the jolt of the body as the cross is dropped into the ground and every joint is pulled apart in that agony of the physical sufferings of the cross under the sovereign hand of God. Christ was bruised, broken and crushed. But of course, beyond that, we think of the soul suffering of our Savior as the Father pours out his wrath and satisfies his justice, forsaking his own. Truly the Lord was bruised in that sense. And so such is the severity and magnitude of his sufferings that the text continues in verse 10, he hath put him to grief. And so the impact of this bruising is to bring the suffering servant to grief, describing sickness, disease, and profound sorrow. This is the action of God to the incarnate Son. Now to emphasize the reality that the cross was indeed the action of the Father, we think of the language of the New Testament Scriptures in this regard. We think of the language, particularly the book of Acts, him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. This, this bruising, this crushing at the hands of man was also under the sovereign control of God. They did whatever God had determined before to be done. Hence, the Lord spared not his own son, but the Lord delivered up for us all. All of this is said to have pleased the Lord. The agonies from which we would turn away in horror are part of the sovereign pleasure of the Lord. Now you've got to ask, well, what does this word please mean? Again, one thing we should understand, if you turn back, first of all, to the Psalm 115. In the Psalm 115, we see this word being used in the context of God's sovereignty. It's referring to the, the heathens asking the question, where is now their God? And it goes on to compare the Lord God uh, with the idols of men. They have hands but can't do things. Mouths speak not, verse 5. And the contrast is with the Lord God, verse number 3. Our God is in the heavens. And again, the God mentioned there in verse number 3 is clearly referred to as the Lord in verse number 1. Our Lord God, Jehovah God, is in the heavens. He hath done whatsoever he hath pleased. And so you're seeing there the word pleased there. The same word used in Isaiah 3. And it's referring to the, the sovereignty of God to do whatever he wants to do. The sovereignty of God to execute his divine will without any hindrance or frustration the the idols they can't do anything at all they don't even have a will but god has a sovereign will which he can execute without fail he hath done whatsoever he hath pleased and so understandably people look at isaiah 53 verse 10 and they see in that sense it is it is god's sovereign will his sovereign counsel to bruise the sun. But to see the word simply in those terms doesn't do justice to the fullness of the meaning of this word to be pleased. You, you turn across to Isaiah chapter 1 now and let's see how the word please is used. Just in one other portion in Isaiah. 
Isaiah 1 verse 11 is dealing with the, again, the, the abuses of the people of God and their sacrifices. They're, they're going through the motions, if you like, of, of ritual and ceremony. Uh, but there's no core heart spirituality in their actions. And so verse 11 says, To what purpose is the multitude of your sacrifice unto me, saith the Lord? I am full of the burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed beasts, and I delight not in the blood of bullocks or of lambs or of he-goats. And here it's in the negative. I'm like, clearly, it is the sovereign will of God for the sacrifices to be offered. More than the sovereign will of God, it's the decreed will of God. It's the revealed will of God, the perceptive will of God, the command of God. All of that's encompassed in this. And yet the Lord says he doesn't delight in these things. And it refers to the divine approbation, the divine pleasure that's absent when there is no heart in these sacrifices. God's pleasure is not in such formalistic, heartless ceremony. And it means this word pleasure does have the connected, in fact, the core thoughts of delight. And of course, when we refer to God's sovereign will, we are exactly referring to that thought. God does what he pleases to do, what he wants to do, what is his delight, using that term delight again as a sovereign divine affection. God taking human language to describe his will. His will is his good pleasure. It is his delight. And yet it says it pleased the Lord to bruise him. That problem, when you consider those parties, and comes to further light when you see that God's pleasure in bruising his son is seemingly, externally, inconsistent with God's justice. Note the connection with verse 10 of Isaiah with the verse number 9. He had done no violence, neither was any deceit in his mouth, yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. And so we're, 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 we're meant to see the, the tension, if you like, in these verses. The, the sinless of the Son, uh, and yet the sovereign pleasure of God to bruise that same sinless individual. You think the language of Proverbs chapter 17, to punish the just is not good, nor to strike princes for equity. We're meant to see this. We're meant to understand this. Because only when we see the tension and the problem will we then properly understand what this table represents. You've got to see these things. It's also a problem because it seems to be inconsistent with God's love for his son. This is my beloved son. Now the relationship of the father and the son is described for us in the language of wisdom in Proverbs chapter 8. And Proverbs chapter 8 verse number 30 describes how the son was dearly his delight. The son is the eternal delight of the father. Same word used for pleasure here in Isaiah chapter 53 verse number 10. And so all of these things they do present us with a difficulty. How do we reconcile all this? Well of course having presented the problem we should then suggest a solution. And really the solution is found in the rest of the text. And we'll consider these things in future months, the Lord sparing us. How can it be that the Lord is pleased to bruise the Son 
Well, because that bruising results in the salvation of sinners. The answer here is, is again given in the context. It pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put into grief. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. Again, we'll look at this in more detail in the coming months. But what we're seeing here is the connection between the Lord's pleasure in bruising the Son and your salvation today. The fact you're here today as a believer with a desire to receive the bread and the cup is a recognition of the pleasure of the Lord to bruise the Son. Without that, you have no right to be here. And without that, I can say without any shadow of doubt, you would not be here. No work of the Spirit of God, no change in your soul. And in fact, in reality, probably the entire universe cast into the deepest hell. The pleasure of the Lord in bruising the Son makes this very event here this morning possible. Sinners shall be saved, verse number 11. By his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many. Salvation's in view here. Which leads to the second thing. And that is, in the salvation of sinners, we see the satisfaction of the sovereign. I love the words at the end of verse number 10. The pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Again, we're meant to draw connection lines between these thoughts. It pleased the Lord to bruise him so that the pleasure of the Lord would prosper in his hand. The Lord's pleasure is his will, his sovereign will. I think of a text like Luke chapter 12, Fear not, little flock, for it is the Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. What is the Father's will? It is the salvation of those elect from before the foundation of the world. And the pleasure of the Lord in bruising the Son secures the pleasure of the Lord in saving the elect. These things are all connected. There's no conflict. There's no problem at all. There is nothing but the mysterious, grand, sovereign counsel of God. God does all things well. And whilst we scratch your head and wonder, God sits in perfect peace and tranquility, doing all things according to the counsel of his will, bruising his son that the elect may be redeemed. We must worship our God again today. This is your God, dear child of God. It is the Father's good pleasure. You think the language of Ephesians chapter 1, it is God's good pleasure to predestinate us unto the adoption of children according to the good pleasure of his will. It is God's good pleasure to make known unto us the mystery of his will. Verse number 9 of Ephesians chapter 1. These are the effects of God's good pleasure that we come to know and love the Lord. To see the gospel. To see the mystery of the kingdom. And put our trust in Christ Jesus. The satisfaction of the sovereign as sinners are converted. Also shows the third thing. And that is the pleasure of the Lord is to act in such a way as to see the success of the Saviour. Look again what it says. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Those words at the end, in his hand, refer to the sovereign triune God 
in the eternal counsel of redemption, placing the work of redemption into the safe-keeping hands of the third or the second person, the Godhead, the Son of God. It is the Son being given a task and a commission. It's like, it's like your employer saying, I've got a very important job for you. I'm going to put this job into your hands. The Father and the Son and the Spirit in the eternal council put the work of redemption into the safe hands of the Son. This is your task. This is your job. And it shall prosper in his hands. And so as the Father is pleased, as the Son is bruised, even as the Father brings darkness in his wrath upon the Son, at the very same time, the Father has divine satisfaction in the perfect obedience of the Son. In the art of darkness, the Son is doing the Father's will, in whom the Father is well pleased. So much so that Christ, having obeyed to death, is therefore highly exalted. And therefore we understand that in the darkness of the cross, the Father is pleased at the obedience and the success of the Son. And if you like, even in the, in the mystery of the Godhead, there is tremendous joy as the Son fulfills redemption for you. The triune God in perfect harmony for your redemption. Not the Son convincing our reluctant Father or a loving father forcing an unwilling son, but father, son, and Holy Ghost in perfect harmonious unity, working out your redemption. Oh, what a Godhead. Oh, what salvation we enjoy in Christ Jesus. The mystery of the Godhead working together that you and I would come to feast at this table. And to nourish our souls in the good things of Christ Jesus. Oh, if your heart is not stirred, pray right now, Lord, open my eyes afresh. Open my heart afresh. Help me to see these things. Deliver me from my dullness and my coldness. I don't want to take these things in a cold spirit. I want to take them with all of my soul. And say afresh today, thank you, Lord, for saving my soul. Thank you, Lord, for making me whole. Thank you, Lord, for giving to me thy great salvation. It's so rich and so free. Come before the Lord again today. Take, take the good things of Christ offered to you in the gospel and do so with gladness. It pleased the Lord to bruise him. So the good pleasure of the Lord should prosper in his hand. Amen.